Don's way too kind. I'm just Mel. <laughs> I'm going to come up a little closer and be with you all. And if you're okay with it, I'm even going to sit because I kind of like being informal. I'm not a Bible scholar or really a gifted teacher. I just happen to feel that um, this book's changing my life every day. And um, so uh, just real quick, Lord, um, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be really pleasing to you today. I welcome you to speak through me whatever you will and to get me out of the way in your name. Um, I do feel honored to be with you all. I have felt honored to be a part of your body for going on 12 or 13 years now on a journey through uh, with many of you in uh, a venture in Tibet. And then in 2010, Dave and I moved our family to northern India in the Himalayas, a beautiful area of India to live among a marginalized community there to create business and life on life. Uh, discipleship and just life, really, just life, just us. We didn't suddenly become amazing people by flying over there. We're just us. But, And we're now, as John said, prepping for an unexpected uh, move. We were unexpectedly deported from India a couple years ago. And so it's been a crazy season uh, in the States and now prepping to move to the Burma-Laos-Thailand border and in July, moving out of our house here in three weeks. So we're, we're in go mode right now and would love to tell you more later. Um, always, always honored to have the chance to teach the word, not, not because I like being in front of people, but because it makes me dig into scripture deeper and it always changes me. So this is me telling you what this did to me over the last seven to 10 days and, and maybe it'll do something to you too. Um, I was excited to hear that this week's scripture was going to be an axe. For whatever reason, I think just the unexpected taking out of North India and into America, this, this idea of the first church in Acts has come up real consistently with Dave and I's discussions lately. We, we get asked a lot about the experiences that we had in India, especially in regards to the church that the Lord established. Uh, it did look a lot like Acts. Acts 2, and many of you are aware of what that looks like. You can turn with me to Acts if you've got your Bibles or your phones or whatever you read the Bible on. Um, many of you have read at the end of Acts 2 that, that the, the people in the early church were, were devoted um, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon every soul. There were many wonders. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They gave to those who were in need. Day by day, they attended church together. They broke bread. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They praised God and had favor, and the Lord added to them. And doesn't this sound amazing? Um, I think we all crave this. I mean, Dave and I do. And even this season back in the States, we crave what we had in, in Rajpur because there was a little more of this going on than often we see here in the States. And so when I, I heard we were going to teach some on Acts, I got excited and um, to learn more about what was going on in these beginning days and why was it so special and extraordinary and radical. So moving to the portion we're going to cover today in Acts 6, if you'll read with me, I'm going to begin to just teach through the story. At the very beginning of Acts 6, we're going to be talking about a man named Stephen today. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, 
A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's amazing. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and a bunch of other people. And they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see at the very beginning here, the church was experiencing growth. There were many being added in numbers. And through that, the needs were great. And they were too great to be handled just by those that, that were disciples and, and in leadership at the time. So this is the first, some of the first mention, really, of the need for more structure. And I love that um, this intentionality was first around uh, the marginalized. It says that the widows weren't, weren't being given what they needed and that they were all in agreement with this plan that says something should be done. And we should take note they were organizing themselves around the weak and the marginalized. As numbers grew, more and more needy and more marginalized were being added to their numbers. I think this in and of itself was radical at the time. You know, the, it would begin to turn heads that many and many were being added to this group. And not only were many being added that were scholars or teachers or, or religious leaders, but many were being added that were marginalized. And what was so radical at the time and what began to turn heads was the early church was growing so much um, that they were throwing the customs of that time on their face. You'll see in the next few chapters that Stephen's bold witness and his words uh, would threaten those in power, but here you see a church's actions that actually began to threaten society. When we care for the weak and the vulnerable, it's threatening to those in power. Dave and I experienced that firsthand in India. And when we live in a world of inequality and injustice, just as Jesus did, and we see that he showed deep concern for the suffering and the marginalized in his words and in his deeds. And giving a voice to the voiceless will cause shifts. Um, I think after spending time with the poor, one of the things we found um, in the years among India was this lesson that God's not abandoned those in need. He was with the widows of this time. And as we begin to care for them, we'll see and know more of the richness of him. As you read in verse 8, Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up fault witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change 
the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, I'm not going to read you the next few chapters, but I'd love to tell you a bit about it. Here's Stephen. He finds himself in the middle of a sudden conflict. And it was so big that um, it was going to get bad. I think he senses that. It obviously is almost in a trial-type setting um, where people are beginning to not only accuse him of some things he's saying, but actually to bear false witnesses against him and the tensions beginning to rise. You notice immediately that Stephen doesn't seem too concerned about his earthly existence and in all the things that we know about Stephen thus far, full of grace and power, the Spirit's present in his lives and I'm sensing an utter peace in that. When they gaze at him, his face was like an angel. God inspires him in the next passage to speak very boldly. He begins to rightly accuse Israel of their failure to accept Jesus, rejecting and eventually murdering him. His speech overall is an indictment against Israel and their, their failure as the chosen people of God. And naturally, these accusations, though they were true, they weren't going to be well received. He reminds them of their faithful followers of the past, and he goes through quite a, uh, quite a long history. Um, many people would say it's perhaps the most detailed and concise history of Israel and their relationships to God throughout all the scriptures. Read it sometime if you can through chapter 7. He goes through and repeatedly reminds them of their continual rebellion and their idolatry. And he does that by reminding them of, this is when God moved with Abraham, and yet look what you did. This is when God moved and was present in times of Moses. And you can sense that Stephen's witness, it gains strength as he gives example after example. You saw God, you knew who he was, and you still killed him. Time and time again, you see him work Moses met God in the wilderness in the burning bush, and he explains how God empowered Moses to lead his people from idolatry and slavery to freedom in the promised land. You can sense the strength, yet their unwillingness to release their own agenda and their own expectations, their own customs, and accept Jesus for who he said he was keeps them in utter anger. In chapter 7, verse 44, after his long, lengthy speech of these reminders of who Jesus is and who, how they continue to resist him, he says in, in chapter 7, verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when, when they dispossessed the nations that drove that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? 
I'm going to stop there. This is the part that's, that's really gotten to me this week. I just continually hear the Lord asking me, what kind of house are you going to build for me? Um, if you look at this in the context in which it was written, Stephen's saying something quite profound here that I don't know if I've ever caught before. His speech has to be seen against the backdrop of those times, and so this, this mention of David and Solomon and Moses and temples and tents and dwelling places, I read a little bit about, again, I'm no scholar, but in those times there were these institutions or these pillars that Judaism had set up. Um, the land and the law and the temple were all three these pillars of great respected institutions of Judaism. And at the time, this is really where God was, where his presence was most known. And if you go way back, we all know that in the time of the garden and, and when God was creating this earth, his presence flowed out through all of creation. But when sin entered, um, there was a separation of that. And so in Judaism, these pillars were that sin separated us from God's presence. But we can go to the temple or we can go to this tent and we can experience his presence. And that was what the Old Testament days consisted of. And people would encounter him really in these set up religious institutions. But we all know that um, God um, is not just in those tabernacles or those temples, that he was, was and is now present much more. He sent Jesus to break that sin and to break the need for us just to experience him in those temples by giving us Jesus and more than that, by giving us and leaving with us his spirit. And the, real, the reality that Stephen's speaking of here is that his spirit had, has come and he left his spirit to infuse into his people. So we no longer experience him in these places of institutions, but we actually have him as a part of our life and inside of us. Yet, how often do we allow these human religious institutions and efforts to be where we meet him? It's a fact of life in almost every culture. I've seen it wherever I go. The temples, the churches, the buildings, the worship services, the Bible studies. We tend to have to do it with structure, don't we? Where we have laws and institutions and, and worship a certain way or go to a certain church to define life this way and that way. And Stephen's saying it's really this effort these efforts that you've made throughout history to keep God enclosed that have kept you from releasing control and letting God dwell within each of you. They thought that worship at the temple would give them a place of special blessing, yet their hearts were very far from God. You'll see um, they applied their limited knowledge and understanding to who God was and they filled it with their definitions and their needs. And Stephen's speech just continually warns his hearers to this deception about those highly respected institutions. He goes on 
after his speech and after he asks, what kind of house will you build for me? To call them stiff-necked. Some versions say stubborn. You stubborn people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. What kind of house will you build for me, the Lord asks. This week, um, I've just been reflecting again on that question and um, asking him what kind of house I've built for him. You know, he's not impressed uh, with the structures that we build up in our lives, whether those are church buildings or whether those our worship service or our own homes or our little kingdoms that we have around us on this temporal earthly structure. And I have felt so sure um, these are not the things he's desiring to indwell. He's asking to indwell and, and become a piece and a part of us fully. He wants to make his home in us, not something we create, not somewhere we go, not something we do. He just wants us, and he wants us to release and let go and let him in fully. God um, has been speaking throughout history to his people, his presence, and continually, we can look at all the examples, we know he wants to be with us. We know he longs to establish his presence in us. And so oftentimes, that greatest and final rebuke of Stephen, we always resist the Holy Spirit. I was thinking how sad that would be at the end of my life if somebody claimed to me that I always resisted the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't think I knew a lick about this until I moved to India. I grew up in a home that was fairly conservative wonderful, God-fearing parents, but the spirit or talk of the spirit was always quite confusing to me. Um, I wasn't exposed to a very spirit-led church or, or people that were radical or charismatic, um, and even the glimpses that I had of that, quite frankly, it was a little confusing. I didn't understand the gifts of the spirit um, or the falling on of the spirit, and, and to be honest, it was just confusing and scary to me. I often just didn't want to deal with that side of God. And, and um, I think when we moved to India uh, is where I began to realize this idea of God actually asking us, can I come in? Can I make my home in you? You know, in America... Um, my own personal life, I think I find quite easy to compartmentalize him, to call on him maybe when I need him or when I want to feel good. Um, but I, I find so many distractions here to actually experiencing his spirit alive in me. I don't need him as much. I can handle this life. I know how to do this, even without him. And when we moved to India, when we began to press into the poor and the marginalized in a much greater way, when there was so much darkness around us, I became so desperate um, because I couldn't do it. 
There was no way I could effectively be his witness or go help the poor or frankly even have a heart for the poor if I didn't call on him every day and all day long in my life. It was the first time I really met him as a piece of me. You know, the Bible actually biblically speaks of the Holy Spirit in person form. I don't think we get that sometimes. We think it's a fire or wind or these things that we discuss so often. And it was, he spoken of in person form. He literally is in me, in my person. And so often we resist it, don't we? It's not necessarily about all the gifts. I know that's a big part of it. But his indwelling in us is about him coming in person form to inhabit us every day, all day, for everything we need. And we so often fail. I have so often failed to realize that, the power that is at work within me. I can remember so many days where if I did not wake and I didn't just simply release myself in the morning to my God who is living inside of me, I couldn't do anything in India. Nothing. I could barely exist. But those days where I began my day asking, Lord, I don't know how this works. I don't understand it. I don't know if you're falling on me or if there's fire or wind or water or whatever. I just know you're in there and I know I'm going to really need you today. Those were the days where unreal things happened. Absolutely unreal, where just somehow my presence at leper colonies would ignite passion in women to love Jesus more, where our friendships with drug addicts was so real and tangible, they wanted a piece of us. We were so attractive, and it was not us. It wasn't us. And we would screw up so much that we'd often have to apologize for us and reintroduce them to the spirit that was alive in us over and over and over again. When I learned, and I'm still learning, and I'm going to figure it out here in America someday, when I learned to release um, my own desires, my own structure, my own plans, and lay those out and say, God, I need you in me and through me to work your will today. Somehow, some way, I'm tapping in. I need you. Those are the days where really incredible things happen. I was thinking through why is it so easy in India for me to do that? And why is it so hard for me here? Guys, the only thing I know is just this life's quite easy. We all know it. We can admit it. Not until I got uncomfortable, where I rubbed shoulders with people that were really hard for me to be with, where I was stripped of my earthly things and my distractions, where I was placed in a position where I couldn't figure it out. That's when I was beginning to understand the true need for His Spirit in me. To release what I had to give and let Him work through me. I think when um, Dave and I go and when we have this spirit of yes 
if I can get real honest, it's not because we think we have something to offer or because we think we're supposed to change the world or save the world or because there's some moral obligation to take care of the poor. It's really none of those things. Quite honestly, it's because we've tasted what happens when we go put ourselves out there. And um, it's fairly selfish in that we just know him more when we're with the poor. We know him in such a deep way that it becomes almost like a drug where we just want more of it. And so those of you that are here and you're going to be here and you aren't called to India or Burma or Thailand or wherever else, you know when you've tasted something so good and you want your friends to taste it too? Find the marginalized here. Find people that are going to make you know Jesus more because they're just desperate. Put yourself in a place of discomfort. Not out of moral obligation. Not out of obedience. Just do it because I guarantee you're going to find Jesus in new ways. And his spirit is going to come so real to you that you're going to experience this Acts 2 stuff that we all crave. It's going to happen when we choose to insert ourselves into lives of the suffering and the struggling, the widow, the orphan, those with disabilities. If you don't have them in your life, guys, get them in. Go to them. Find them. They're around. Get uncomfortable. Rub shoulders with them. Have them enter your home. You know, I don't think Dave and I have spent more than a year of our 18 years of marriage without somebody in our home living with us. Really simple things, guys. You all have guest rooms. Just put somebody in there. Um, I continue to find that um, the best days I have with the Spirit is um, just quite practically when I wake and ask Him to control my day that day. I was again trying to think of practical things and it's nothing big. I don't have like these overwhelming moments where every morning the Spirit falls on me and meets me with all these crazy gifts. I'm quite normal, but I would say that my days that are extraordinary when I wake up and tell Him I can't do it without Him. You know, I'm running a business right now where 350 people are hoping and praying I can figure it out so they can have their jobs tomorrow. And I've never taken a business class in my life. I know nothing about what I'm doing. But the Lord does, and he's got it. He designed business. He knows how to do this. And if I can tap into him every morning, man, my business goes so much better. And if I don't, watch out. I mess everything up. Um, you know, I find it interesting. I've gone my whole life knowing about Stephen stoning and his death. I had no clue it had anything about resisting the Holy Spirit. The accusation that they couldn't handle was when he says to them in their face, God has been here all along asking to infiltrate you with his presence, and all you do is keep resisting it. They got so angry. You read about their response, it's almost scary. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, 
gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They rushed together at him and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, humanity has truly been transformed since Jesus walked the earth. We have been honored. We have been given an honor that's unprecedented in the history of the universe, that we not only can share in God's work, but that he has allowed us to be vessels of his spirit. That alongside this body that's dying and this beating physical heart is a spirit that's alive and well. Paul tells us the spirit was the guarantee of a thrilling further chapter in our lives. And we have such timeless riches in that, don't we? The spirit that will never die, that desires an abundant life, lives within us. Why do we choose to waste our time and our resources and our talents and our energies every day on things that are less satisfying and less forever? Like Stephen, um, I think about when we really see Jesus for who he is. Can you imagine looking up and, and literally seeing that Jesus is the Son of God and he's at his right hand and he's there and that he deposited his spirit in us. When we see him for who he really is, that's when things grow strangely dim. When this temporal life of business and jobs and making money and building houses and oh my goodness, these things we worry so much of that we fret about on a daily basis, those things will grow dim when we realize Jesus is there at the right hand. His spirit is in my life and present in my body. What timeless riches await us. Just as I close and, and worship comes up, um, again, I think more than anything, the as Dave and I were driving this morning um, and seeing all the empty cars that had gotten in the, the flood and um, just thinking about how crazy it is that those people saw the running, rushing water and still seemed to think it was a good idea to enter it. But I was uh, shushing Levi from the back seat. He kept saying, hey, Mommy. I said, hang on. Papa and I are talking, Mommy, you know, like maybe the sixth shush. We were almost all the way here from Salem Springs. I said, Levi, what? And he was saying, I wanted to tell you my favorite verse. And he just spoke, this sweet 10-year-old, that his favorite verse is that God must become greater and we must become less. And I had shushed him up about six times. And I was thinking, isn't it the truth?
How often we shush the Lord out and saying, hang on, I got this today. I've really got a big meeting today. Hold on, the kids need me. Hold on, our finances, I need to go over my budget today. Just hold on. And he's saying, but wait, wait, wait. I must become greater. You must become less. Um, Ike, thanks for the songs you picked out today. I think we could go through all of those again, and it would just reiterate this idea of surrender. Lord, be my vision, be my everything. Lord, enter me in a way that every day you are living this thing out in control. That it's not me, that it's you. Forgive us, Father, for when we don't do that. Your grace upon grace is in our lives. You're still here asking to take us over. I just ask that for all of us today. Just a release. Father, we just give up. Take it all. Let this stuff slough off so we can see you for who you are. Help us insert our lives into discomfort into the marginalized so that you'll show up more. Help us know what it means that you want to take a home in us, that you're looking for a home in us, that you want to reside with us. Make it real to us today. Wherever we go with whoever we speak and whatever worries or concerns we have, spirit, live through us. Again, Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would really be pleasing to you. That this story that you gave to us of Stephen's life and his ability to release and to let the Spirit overwhelm him with your goodness, that this would just become real. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.